have really good data showing just how important companion animals can be for older individuals in our society for all sorts of reasons. And I think we can't underscore that enough. Whether they're bulldogs or young dogs or cats or other pets, they play an incredibly valuable role. At Home with Growing Older is a nonprofit organization which believes in peer learning and creating discussions which bring the lens of aging to a variety of topics. At Home with Growing Older is proud to be your host of At Home on Air, a radio hour offering connection, community, and knowledge to our participants remotely. Now, we invite you to listen and learn from this live recorded episode of At Home on Air. Welcome, everybody. Thank you for joining another conversation on At Home on Air, conversations that matter for the experiences of later life. I am Susie Stadler, an architect and the executive director of At Home with Growing Older, the producer of this program. I'm very pleased to welcome Dr. Daniel Promislov. Dr. Promislov is the co-director and primary investigator of the Dog Aging Project and professor at the University of Washington. Thank you so much, Dr. Promislav, for joining us. This conversation is about a unique and innovative project, an investigation into what we can learn from aging dogs and how it benefits us both. Those who live in the Bay Area will be able to explore other facets of the human-animal bond and its impact on healthy aging at an in-person learning event on June 17. So please keep this opportunity in mind. So without further ado, again, welcome Dr. Promislav. And let me just say it's really a great pleasure to be here and to have the chance to have this discussion and to spend some time answering questions with this audience. Really pleased to be here. And of course, the first question is, what can we learn from aging dogs? Can you tell us about the intent and the vision of this project and how it got started? Sure. So dogs are a really powerful model to understand aging. I'm a biologist, and usually when biologists talk about model organisms, they think that they're talking about yeast or fruit flies or mice, organisms that people bring into the lab and study in this very unnatural, highly controlled environment that is the laboratory. But we don't live in a laboratory. We live in an extraordinarily diverse environment around the world. We live in all kinds of environments. And we ourselves are extremely diverse. We all look different. We're different heights. Our skin tone is different. Our hair color is different. So many things about us are different. That variety, that variation, partly due to genetics and partly due to the environment, isn't reflected in the laboratory. And so one of the really exciting things about studying aging in dogs is that they do share that heterogeneity, that variation, both genetically and in the environment. So the big question that we're trying to understand with the dog is what are the genetic factors, the biological factors, the lifestyle factors, 
and the environmental factors that influence healthy aging and that can help dogs to be healthy agers. So dogs have the variety that we do. Unfortunately, they don't live as long as we do. So what we can learn from dogs, we can learn much faster than it would take to learn from people. And then last and maybe most importantly is that people love dogs. And so if we can learn what will keep a dog healthy for a longer period of its lifetime, that's good not only for the dog, but also for the people who love the dog. Yes, I'm just curious how many in this audience are dog owners? Before the onset of the pandemic, there were about 100 million dogs in the United States. And the dog population grew considerably during the pandemic. I don't know the current number, but well over 100 million. Probably almost one person in two, on average, has a dog in their lives. Wow, what an opportunity for the Dog Aging Project and for us. So that brings me to the next question. When I read about the beginnings of your scientific research and teaching career, you said that one of your aspirations was really to serve as a liaison between science and the non-scientific communities. And you always also talked about how fascinating the study of aging was because it brought so many opportunities, really. So I wonder if the Dog Aging Project has become sort of your dream project. It has, although I I feel as if my whole career was leading me up to this moment without realizing it. And in general, I hope that all of us live lives where we are enjoying the moment, not realizing that everything we do actually does inevitably lead to where we are in the present moment. My undergraduate experience was very diverse. I went to a liberal arts college and I studied the humanities and the social sciences and the sciences. And I loved making connections between those things as an undergraduate. And when I applied to graduate school, I said, in my career, I want to try and build bridges between the humanities and the sciences, the scientist and the non-scientist. I then began my independent career as a fruit fly biologist, and I still have a lab full of people working on fruit flies, and trying to make connections between ideas. What excites me about science is exploring the unknown questions that are between the areas of knowledge or the silos of knowledge that we have. And I find that often the most creative things happen in what I like to call the interstices, the in-between places. So the Dog Aging Project really is about making connections. On our team, we have social scientists, we have ethicists, we have veterinarians and epidemiologists and biologists like myself. As a team, we are drawing connections between different disciplines, but we're also building connections in the community of people who are with us, generously sharing the information that they have about their dog and how it's living its life, whether it's a young dog or an old dog, we enroll dogs of all ages. And so it really does feel like, without realizing it, all of the work that I did up until I was inspired to start developing this project was preparing me to make connections between ideas in our study and to help make connections between people. It's been a challenge for me. I lead a team of about 100 people and learning how to be a leader and how to make sure that the team is at its best by making all those connections between the people on the team and then also helping to build community among dog lovers who are meeting through our study. So it really is 
all about connections in many different ways. Yeah, what a wonderful other type of this ancient dark human mutuality. <laughs> Who would have thought that in addition to hunting partners and guide dogs and service dogs and pets, now we also learn from each other as we grow older. Regarding the community scientists you work with, I noticed also on your platform that there is a concerted effort to actually connect the scientists. There's, for instance, something called the dog park, where I think people can exchange information or ideas. I'm curious how important this has become, creating community among the dog owners in the project. Not everybody goes to the dog park, but many thousands of people do, and they find it to be a wonderful opportunity to create community. So many of us have this experience of having a hard time meeting people and reaching out to others and finding a way to connect. And of course, during the last few years, that's been even more difficult. The dog park is different things for different people. For many people, it's a social connection where people can go there and start their own groups. So if someone is from Baltimore and is a participant, they could seek other participants in Maryland and maybe meet at dog parks. There are people who go there to find others with common interests. There are others who go there to speak to the veterinarians who are at the dog park to learn about dog health. Mm -hmm. It really is different things to different people, but it's very much about building community. Not only people from my team coming to our participants with our new discoveries, for example, but also really creating opportunities for the participants to come together as we like to think of them as community scientists. They are participating in science with us. They are data collectors, sharing the data with us. We analyze it and give it back to them. But they are also people who just love coming together and sharing their enthusiasm about dogs and their interest in healthy aging. Can you give us an example of one of the experiments you ask participants to do? Sure. Most of the data that we get is based on either surveys that people fill out or analysis of samples that we are given when the dog owner brings the dog to a veterinarian and we get blood samples, for example, and we can do biology. But we love to actually engage the participants in working with their dog to learn things. And some of them are very simple. So we have videos that teach people how to measure a dog. In humans, if we're interested in body condition, we talk about body mass index And it's a very simple measure just based on our weight and our height. In dogs, it's a little trickier because how do you compare a Bernese mountain dog and a chihuahua? You know, they're such different shapes, but we're really interested in how body condition and proportion and where fat is distributed in dogs affects health just like in humans. And so we teach people how to measure different parts of the dog with a tape measure the legs, the thighs, the back length and head length, all these different parts. And when we put that together with weight, we actually get quite accurate measures of body condition. One other example I'll give where we actually engage the participants in games with the dogs, just like in humans, we're very interested in how age affects cognitive ability. As dogs get older, 
Many of them start to have challenges with memory, with direction, the same sort of things that we struggle with as we get older. We have a game where we teach the owner how to work with the dog to test their memory, putting things in boxes and then taking the dog away and seeing if it can remember which box had the treat. We really love getting the owners engaged in not just in answering questions on the computer or taking the dog to the veterinarian, but actually working with the dog. And any dog is going to be able to do these sorts of simple games that we teach them. When you're saying any dog can do the simple tricks, we know that there's a wide range of behavioral differences. I'm just wondering, is there a way to factor this in for certain breeds? So first of all, as you alluded to, there's actually no right answer for a dog. There's no better or worse. We're just interested in how they behave, mm -hmm. whether we can find genes, for example, that are associated with how they behave. We have 45,000 dogs, and I promise you that Each one of those 45,000 dogs is a good dog. One of our team members, Eleanor Carlson, who's at UMass Medical Center and the Broad Institute at MIT and Harvard, has another study that she does that's similar to ours but focused on behavior. She collects a huge amount of information about behaviors in dogs, memory and anxiety and mobility, how they walk and whether they chase after squirrels and everything you can imagine. She's also looking at how those behaviors change with age. So there's a tremendous amount that we can understand about behavior in dogs. And I'm really interested in understanding which of those behaviors change and which don't. All of you will have had the experience with your loved ones, with family and friends, seeing that some of our personalities are just hardwired from when we're four or five years old. And then other things change as we grow and mature. And the same is true in dogs. Do you mind repeating her name? Sure. Do Eleanor, E-L-I-N-O-R, Carlson, K-A-R-L-S-S-O-N. Thank you. There was an issue of science that came out just a couple of weeks ago that was all about mammals. There were about a dozen papers in that issue of science based on this huge study of the genetics of hundreds of different species of mammals. And she was one of the people who led that whole project. Coming back to your community scientists, I'm wondering if you know what age range there are in more older adults participating in your studies with their dogs than younger? There's a really wide age range. We don't allow minors to be the primary participants. So everybody is 18 to well over 80 or 90. There's all kinds of people from every state in the country, a very wide range of socioeconomic status, as much human diversity as there is dog diversity. Relative to the population of people in the United States, there are more older people. And I would speculate that that's probably because as we get older, we tend to have more flexibility in our schedule and we can take the time to fill out surveys. Related to that, an interesting observation, we find we have a lot of information on how active the dogs are. And we find that dogs that belong to older owners tend to spend more time being active outside. It's a good thing that they are, and I would guess it's partly because as we get older, we have more flexible time to spend with our dogs. Maybe this leads us into insights you have gained from your studies. I found this really interesting that older dog owners have more active dogs because we know that physical activity is really one of the primary contributors to healthy aging. 
So I feel like this benefits beautifully humans and dogs. Dogs get exercise, humans have their exercise coach. I'm just curious if this was a surprise or you expected that? It was a great surprise. We were expecting that as people got older, the dogs would be less active. And we found just the opposite. The youngest age group of 18 to 24 spent a lot of time with their dogs. And then it went down and people in their 30s and 40s didn't spend nearly as much time with their dog. We don't know for sure why, but one of the things that's different between 18-year-olds and 80-year-olds versus 30-year-olds is that people in their 30s and 40s are really focused on their work life and building a family and maybe have less time to be walking the dog. That's just speculation. The other element that's still an open question, we have to do more research on this, is how the answers that we give to questions on a survey might depend on our own experience and our age. It might also reflect just differences in perception about what makes for a very active dog for a 20-year-old versus a 70-year-old. So people could answer in a very individual way. Right. And one of the things that we're quite excited about is we're just now starting to put actigraphy monitors on dogs. These are like Fitbits, but for dogs, keep track of how many steps they take. One of the things that will be really valuable about that is we can observe the relationship between what the dog actually does and what the owner perceives the dog to do. A personal anecdote, my daughter and son-in-law have an Aussie Shepherd who has activity monitor on his collar, and it's a constant sort of game that they play to try and get their very active dog to walk as many steps in a day as they can. And when I think about that, that could be a wonderful enticement for all of us to get out with our dog and take it for one more walk around the block and so to help ourselves by helping our dog. I constantly have a bad conscience that I don't play enough with my dog. I run with my dog, but I don't play. So this would be a really good incentive for me <laughs> to play. I think it's a lovely idea and a great incentive again, a win-win for both sides. Yeah. And you know, one of the amazing things about watching dogs age, and I've watched my own dogs age, is dogs don't complain. And I think they are just very present in their experience. They have a sense that here is where they are now, whether they can run incredibly quickly in a big farm field, or if they're slowly walking up the stairs with arthritis, which is very common in dogs, they're just very present. I had a dog who lived to 16 and a half, and she had terrible osteoarthritis, but she still loved to play in a very simple and slow way. But I think there's a message there for us that whatever our condition, we can play in a way that works for us. If we have a dog in our lives, whether it's a speedy little two-year-old running around or a dog in its geriatric years, It's an opportunity for us to play with that dog. Yeah, thank you for reminding us of this. You also just mentioned arthritis as one of the common effects of aging humans and dogs share. What other traits do we share? So at the beginning of our conversation, I told you some reasons why I think dogs are such a beautiful animal in which to study aging. The other thing that I didn't mention is that they get many of the same diseases that we get as we age. They got osteoarthritis, they get cancer, they suffer from 
kidney disease, gastrointestinal problems, pancreatitis, all the sorts of things that can be challenges for us. There are a couple of things they don't get. They don't tend to get type 2 diabetes, but they do get type 1 diabetes. They get heart disease, valve disease, like mitral valve disease, cardiomyopathy. They don't get cardiovascular disease. So they don't get heart attacks and strokes. So unlike the fruit flies in my lab that show signs of aging just like we do, but we don't know why they die, we know why dogs get sick. We can diagnose them. We can treat them. So what we learn about the effect of age on disease, on morbidity, will apply to us because they get the same things. And they have a very sophisticated healthcare system. Interestingly, there are all the specialties in veterinary medicine, just like in human medicine, cardiology and dermatology and GI and infectious disease. One of the specialties that doesn't yet exist in veterinary medicine is geriatrics. And geriatrics is so important for us. If I am in my geriatric years, I want to go to a physician who will look at me and know that you know, for my age, what's going well and what needs to be going better. We don't have veterinarians with that training. They learn on the job and they'll see a lot of old golden retrievers and old German shepherds and old French bulldogs around. But the rare breeds they won't see and they won't know what a healthy ager is supposed to look like. Part of Mm. what we're doing is trying to tie all those things that happen in dogs with their age and their breed to better understand what a healthy ager is. So do you think there will be veterinary We're training some, and there are certainly veterinarians who specialize in working with older dogs. We actually have a veterinary palliative care specialist who leads our animal welfare advisory board. So this is a veterinarian who's trained to take care of dogs in their last weeks and months of life. I hope that we are laying the foundation for what some years in the future will become a certified specialty of veterinary geriatrics. Yes, and Mattville, the senior dog adoption agency in San Francisco, has palliative care specialist for dogs. This is a really helpful perspective to introduce to veterinary emergency hospitals. A wonderful and interesting development. are listening to At Home On Air. We are now switching to questions by participating audience members in this recorded live episode. If you want a chance to ask your question, visit us at athomewithgrowingolder.org and register for the next live episode. Robin asks, is there anything in your research so far that has come as a surprise? Yeah, we've already started learning a lot. The papers that we've published so far have been based on survey data, and I'll tell you a story about one of those. We are just now beginning to analyze the biological specimens, and I'm especially excited about that. My lab is one of the labs working on that. In the coming year, we'll be publishing papers about how our biological specimens might be able to predict diseases in dogs. One result that was a surprise to us was looking at how often dogs eat. There are some people who feed their dogs once a day, some people three times a day, and then there are others who just leave the food out. If a dog is not very food motivated, you can just leave the food out and it will take a little bit whenever it's hungry and throughout the day. In the aging field, in biogerontology, the field that I work in, 
or geroscience, it's also called. One of the ideas that some people are interested in is the possibility that occasionally fasting or what we call intermittent fasting might improve health. And that can be as simple as limiting the time when we eat from, let's say, eight in the morning till seven in the evening, not eating from seven at night till eight the next morning. So effectively fasting for 13 hours every day. I'm not saying you should do this, but there's a lot of research on this. And we were interested in looking at this in dogs. So dogs that feed just once a day are effectively fasting for 23 hours or so every day. And sure enough, to our surprise, we didn't think we would find this, but we found that dogs that only feed once a day are less likely to have certain diseases. For example, less likely to have gastrointestinal problems and pancreas problems. So that was a surprise and interesting. But there's a second part of the story, which is a really important, valuable lesson. This result was based on the first year of data, which means that it was just one slice in time. We're now following the dogs every year. There are some dogs in the third year already that have given us three years of survey data. But in this first year, we found this relationship. And it's a bit of a challenge. The journalists and the media started saying, you should feed your dog only once a day. I am not telling you to feed your dog once a day. And here's the problem. I'll just tell a personal story with my dog, Frisbee. She was one of these dogs that didn't eat much of anything, not very food motivated, but I fed her twice a day. And when she got sick, she had pancreatitis. Her pancreas was in bad shape. She had bad gastrointestinal problems. And the veterinarian said, you need to feed her many small meals throughout the day. So dogs with GI problems might be more likely to have to feed multiple times a day. And that will look like dogs that only feed once a day are less likely to have GI problems. It might look like that because dogs that feed once a day are ones that haven't been told by the vet, you need to be fed multiple times a day. When we see these correlations, we need to be very careful about whether there's a cause between these two things or they're just correlated. So surprising result, we now need to do the long-term follow-up to see if young dogs that are fed once a day or multiple times a day years down the line become unhealthy or healthy dogs. And the good thing is we're going to have those data three or four years from now. That's fantastic. And I wonder also what conclusions to draw for humans from that. Should we eat only once a day? No. <laughs> At this point, we definitely can't draw the conclusion that dogs should feed only once a day. When we go into the longitudinal part of our study, when we can look at what feeding behavior today does to our health five years from now in the dog, then we can draw conclusions. There's some interesting data from human nutrition studies about intermittent fasting, not eating from six in the morning till midnight. But the other really important thing that dogs teach us, human studies as well, is that we're all different. And this is something I hope to learn from the Dog Aging Project and to reinforce that what's right for me might not be right for you. We do know that a healthy lifespan in humans is determined in part by healthy diet, exercise, and social interaction. But what's a healthy diet for me might be different for you. And that's this idea of precision medicine, that each one of us might have our optimum diet and they might be different. I think the Dog Aging Project will eventually teach us things about understanding what each of us need uniquely to live a healthy, long lifespan. So it's maybe leading us to a more individualistic approach to healthy aging. Very much so. 
And one other thing that I would add, we have a paper that has just been accepted that will be coming out soon that looks at the quality of the environment in terms of economic resources, availability of grocery stores and that kind of thing. And just like in people, dogs in poor environments have generally poor health outcomes. So I think we're also going to be able to learn from dogs why in human populations, those in resource-poor environments don't do as well with their health. Going to the next question, Rachel asks, what are some things you wish people understood about how dogs age? That's a great question. Well, one thing is that I wish more dog owners appreciate, and I think most do, that just like in people, an active lifestyle and a healthy body condition is really important for dog health. There are people who don't appreciate that obesity in dogs can be a real challenge for the dog in terms of its health. We should think about that just as much in dogs as we do in people. Dog owners actually really, really understand their dogs. People are so connected with their dogs, it's surprising how much they know. We hear stories from people who say, my dog eats two meals a day and she'll eat the whole bowl in 10 minutes and it's gone twice a day, every day for a year. One day she woke up and she wouldn't eat the bowl of food and I knew right away something really serious was wrong. And sure enough, something really serious was wrong. People know their dogs and care about them. What I want to know more is how is it that people understand their dogs so well? They really do know a lot about aging in dogs, I would say. That's a great thing to consider. Why are we so in tune with our dogs? There's even been some really interesting studies showing that there are certain kinds of dogs where when the dog looks at its owner and the owner looks at its dog, they both show increases in a hormone that in the popular press, some people call the love hormone, oxytocin. So there are just amazing deep connections that can happen between people and dogs. Crystal asks, does an older dog sleep more during the day? Do larger dogs sleep more versus smaller dogs? If a dog sleeps a lot, does that mean they are depressed? These are great questions. Some I can answer a little bit and some not. So older dogs do sleep more. There's a lot of individual variation. There are dogs that sleep a lot, dogs that don't sleep so much, just like us. As dogs get older, there's actually a dog syndrome called canine cognitive dysfunction, or CCD, that looks a lot like Alzheimer's disease. And as dogs struggle with dementia, like in humans, that can often go along with anxiety. And you might see your dog waking up at night, spinning in circles, pacing, having a hard time settling and going back to sleep. So that's certainly something that can happen with age. I don't know about larger versus smaller dogs, and now I want to know, so I'm going to have to go and look in the literature and see if there's something about that. And then depression. We do see relationships between sleep and depression. There is depression in dogs, and dogs are even treated with some of the same medicines that are used in humans to try and treat depression. I should say I'm not a veterinarian, and I'm certainly not a veterinary psychologist or psychiatrist, but my sense about canine depression is that one thing that we do see is a dog that has a lot less interest in doing the things that it normally likes to do. So for those of you who have dogs, when you make a sign that you are about to do something with the dog that they love, whether it's going for a walk, getting in a car, playing with a ball, that dog will respond with excitement with a real sense of enjoying life. And a depressed dog might not show an interest mm -hmm. in something that it normally does show interest in. It makes total sense. 
Mark asks another question related to nutrition and food. Did you find or do you at this time suspect any other aging advantages based on how dogs are fed? For example, I'm wondering about the relative amount of protein compared to other macronutrients to the likelihood for arthritis, muscle wasting, or kidney disease, or if the degree to which their diet spikes their blood sugar might affect their health and lifespan, or maybe something else that is totally surprising. These are terrific questions. I don't yet have answers. One of the students on the project works with me and is currently looking at all the different diets that are represented in our population of dogs and whether we can detect signatures in the blood analysis that we do in my lab. Many, many studies have been done by the big food companies on dogs. They do studies on what the optimal diet is for maintaining weight and health in dogs. Dogs have somewhat different needs than we do. Cats have somewhat different needs than dogs. Cats tend to need more protein than dogs. In terms of the details about the relative contribution of proteins and fats and carbohydrates, I don't know what's ideal, and I don't know how those things relate to risk of arthritis, for example. There probably is a literature out there, and it's certainly something that we will be able to ask as we move through the years of this study. And many of our dogs, thousands of our dogs, report musculoskeletal issues most commonly osteoarthritis, which is very common. One specific thing that we're interested in looking at has to do with grain-free diets. There is some concern that grain-free diets, because of their rich legume content, peas and beans, might be leading to some heart problems in dogs. And there's a limited bit of literature on this. This was based on anecdotal observations. And so this is something that we're trying to look at to see if that's really the case. Interestingly, the report that was put out by the Food and Drug Administration about grain-free diets shows how much we have to learn still about what optimal diets are for dogs. I would also imagine just looking at my own experience from having a dog growing up to now, how different dogs are being fed. We ask a lot about diet, and you wouldn't be surprised to know how much variety there is. The most common diet in our population is dried kibble food, although even there, there's tremendous differences in the kinds of foods. But then we also have people who feed their dogs raw food, homemade cooked food, We even have some dogs that are vegans. Tremendous variation. Anita asked a question related to arthritis. Are there studies being done about anti-inflammatory drugs which can reduce pain in older dogs with arthritis? Do these drugs enhance well-being in old age and therefore add to their good years? Or do their side effects cancel out those effects? I can only speak from personal experience. I'm not a veterinarian and wouldn't want to give any veterinary medical advice. There certainly are anti-inflammatory drugs that are dog-specific. The one that I know of by the trade name is Rumadil, very commonly used. In our cohort of 45,000 participants, many of them also give supplements to their dogs that are often thought to possibly help. Common ones are glucosamine, chondroitin sulfate, I don't have any data yet about whether they actually help, and it's hard to know without clinical trials 
just like in humans, the ideal way to find out would be a randomized placebo-controlled clinical trial where half the dogs are on placebo and half are on treatment. I will say that my own observation with Frisbee and her osteoarthritis is that the pain meds helped her get up and around and be able to walk outside. My sense was that that was a real improvement in her quality of life. And I don't know enough to be able to answer with an informed opinion about the side effects of those drugs. Thank you. Coming back to the community scientists who are part of the project, first of all, are there any criteria for people signing up their dogs for the dog aging project? I love that question. Every dog is eligible. The only limitation is that they have to have their primary residence in the United States. And we hope to raise funds in the future to be able to expand to other countries and to translate all the materials. All dogs, from newborn puppies to the oldest old, large breed, small breed, male, female, sterilized, intact, all are welcome. We even have some working dogs. We're very interested in that diversity. Any dog is welcome. And all you have to do to sign up is go to dogagingproject.org and click on the Nominate Your Dog button. What's the commitment? You know, if I change my mind two months from now, it's probably not helpful for you. How long do you have to commit? So we hope that people will choose to join for the life of the dog. The power of this study is that it's a long-term longitudinal study, that we're following these dogs for their whole lives, so that just like in our own experience with our loved ones, we can capture that whole trajectory of life. Although even enrolling a very old dog is helpful for us. The main thing that we ask when you join is to fill out a survey that tells us all about the health, the lifestyle, the behavior of your dog. And that can take a couple of hours. There are 10 parts. You don't have to do them all at mm-hmm. once. Once you complete all 10 parts, you become a member of the pack. Even if you never do another thing, you are a member of the Dog Aging Project pack for life. But we hope that every year, when you receive an email inviting you to carry out the annual follow-up survey, that you will do that. And that gives us the longitudinal data that really is the power that helps us to watch how life unfolds for each and every dog, how things change, and importantly, how what happened previously might influence what's happening now. That's the real power. So we can say, oh, if your dog gets this disease, It looks like it's at higher risk of getting this other disease in three years. The only way we know that is by following these thousands of dogs. If your situation changes and you just aren't able to stay with the project, that's okay. We'll call you and encourage you to stick around, but no one is forced to do anything they don't want. Well, thanks for clarifying. I'm curious, is part of the motivation for people to sign up, is it because they want a longer health span, not necessarily lifespan? but health span for their dog or contributing to the research for humans or both? Yeah, so that's a great question. Different people sign up, I think, for different reasons. For us who run the project, we really care about health span, which is the period of healthy, vigorous life. The goal is not to find out what sort of diet or what genes or whatever will make a dog live longer in a debilitated state. We want to maximize the healthy period of lifespan, just like in people. One of the things that really has struck me about people and their dogs is how much dog owners really care about dogs in general. 
For example, people whose dogs get cancer will often be asked if they want to enroll in a clinical trial. And frequently, it's a trial that's going to be too late for this dog. And the owners are told by the veterinarian, this won't help your dog. It's too late. But what we learn from your dog will probably help dogs in the future. If they know that half of all golden retrievers will get cancer, it's too late for their dog. But maybe by their dog enrolling in a study, it might help the next generation of golden retrievers. They will do that without question. And then there are also people who are doing this because they just think it's a whole lot of fun and they love sharing stories about their dogs. I won't bore you with all the stories I could tell you about my dog. People come up to me and say, oh my goodness, I just love being part of the study. I get to talk about my dog all the time. So different people have different reasons. And what really gratifies me is that we manage to provide something for everyone. Yes, it's pretty amazing what you started building. Thank you really for doing this. What just came to my mind when you talked about half of golden retrievers, you know, get cancer, which I didn't know, is that I heard, and I don't know if this is anecdotally, that seeing eye dogs or guide dogs actually have a shorter lifespan because what I have heard, I have no idea if this is true, they have to make so many decisions as a working dog, which I think, I don't know if, You've heard this too, or if there are guide dogs also, you know, involved or registered in the yeah. project. We've done a little bit of work with a wonderful organization in California, just north of you in Santa Rosa, called Canine Companions for Independence. They train dogs for people in wheelchairs, people with hearing impairment, veterans with PTSD. We've been talking for a long time with a senior scientist veterinarian there, Brenda Kennedy, about enrolling a cohort of those dogs to ask that very question. These dogs are extremely well-trained and really are life-changing for the people who they help. But it's important for us to keep in mind that they are working all the time. Most of our dogs are playing all the time, and these dogs are working all the time, and they're incredible at what they do. But we think it's probably stressful, and we would love to study them to find out what the consequences of that experience is for the dog. So you're right. There are anecdotal stories about this. I would love to find someone to fund a study with the CCI, Canine Companions for Independence Dogs, or Seeing Eye Dogs, or some working cohort. I'm actually going to give a talk to a group that trains dogs to be courthouse support dogs. They are in the courtroom often with children, to just be there. And these dogs have a pretty easy job. Their job is to lie on the ground still and be petted, usually by the child who's testifying. So I don't know how stressful that is, but I can tell you that that's a powerfully important and valuable experience for a child who has to go through that kind of stressful experience to have a warm, loving body right there empathizing with them. Yes. What a role another support and benefit we get from our animal companions. One last thing that we haven't really had a chance to talk about. We have really good data showing just how important companion animals can be for older individuals in our society for all sorts of reasons. And I think we can't underscore that enough. Whether they're old dogs or young dogs or cats or other pets, They play an incredibly valuable role in all sorts of ways for older individuals in our society. Yes, thank you for giving me the opportunity again to plug our event on June 17 here in San Francisco, because that's exactly our topic, to explore this deeper from various perspectives.
I think many of us can sort of corroborate this health benefit on a daily basis. This was very interesting and enlightening conversation. We really, really appreciate you doing this work and sharing it with us. So thank you, Dr. Thank Pronslov. Thank you so much. And I look forward to hearing more about At Home with Growing Older. It's a wonderful organization. And it's been a great pleasure to be here. Tell your friends and family members with dogs to sign their pups up for the dog aging project. I'd like to get to 100,000. How many do you have now? 45,000. All right. No problem. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Right. Bye, everybody. This episode of At Home On Air was produced by the At Home With Growing Older team. We could not host these conversations without the generosity of our marvelous and passionate guests and hosts. Thank you for sharing your personal and professional insights. Thank you to our live audience for your thoughtful contributions. To subscribe to this podcast and for more information, visit us at athomewithgrowingolder.org. Thank you to our sponsors, Rhoda Goldman Plaza, the jewel of San Francisco's assisted living and memory care communities, and the Walnut Foundation, a San Francisco family foundation. We would also like to thank, for their encouragement and inspiration, Encore.org, which works to bridge the intergenerational divide, and the Op-Ed Project, whose mission is to change who writes history. At Home with Growing Older strives to educate, inspire, and connect people across generations and disciplines to re-envision and improve the experiences of later life. Don't forget to subscribe and tune in for the next episode.